If you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, chapters 1 through 24, it's this morning's scripture reading. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now I say, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. How you think affects how you live. It just does. What you hear, what you see, what you take in, live life around experience uh, affects how you think, which again has everything to do with how you live. And as we return to our sermon series in the book of Ephesians, the text we're going to look at gets at this very thing. So if you're not already there, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians 4. And while they're turning, if you can get these lights on above my head, it'd be super helpful. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24. Thanks. I'll begin by reading the first part of verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do 
Paul begins by saying, now this I say, and in the Greek text, the little word now in the ESV that I'm reading from is actually that real important little word often translated therefore. So it's an inference. It's, it's saying what, I, what I've just said is the ground for what I'm about to tell you. And so it's been a few months since we've been in this wonderful book together, so it's worth thinking back a bit on what Paul's pointing to with this word, therefore. In the previous section, we had that read in our Scripture reading, Paul told the Ephesians that, that Jesus had given them specific gifted leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and, and that through the Word, Christians then would not be tossed around in our thinking by false teachers and other forms of worldly deceit. So it's real easy to see the immediate connection between these two sections, but that said, we, we do need to go back a little further, don't we? Because at the very beginning of chapter 4, you had the really big therefore of this book. It's the one that really connects the two halves of this letter, because Ephesians is actually divided in, in half. The first three chapters of Ephesians walk us through the, what the glorious theology of what God has done for us in Christ. And then you have the therefore of chapter 4, verse 1, which, which points us and moves us in the direction of how now do we live. And this particular therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, drives home the point that we don't live a certain way to earn God's love. Now, the point of the therefore is that we've already received God's amazing love, and thus we're called to walk it's a key word in verse 1, picked up in our passage this morning. We're called to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And so let's refresh our memories just a bit and think back on some of chapters 1 through 3 and what the therefore points us back to. With that therefore, Paul is saying, because, chapter 1, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing through the finished work of Christ, Be, because, Christian, you were chosen from before the foundation of the world because you were predestined to adoption and adopted by God to a glorious inheritance. Because, chapter 2, God through Christ broke the chains of your slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh. Because God made you who were dead spiritually, He made you alive with Christ. Because God brought you, a Gentile, as far away from him as you possibly could be, and he brought you near because God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile so people could live at peace because you are part of God's new temple. Because, chapter 3, the gospel breaks down all barriers of all kinds of people because Christ's love for us is so amazing and staggering that we must pray, pray for one another, so that we can grow in our comprehension of how stunning it is. And Paul's saying, because of all of this, chapter 4, verse 1, we now are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And part of that walking in a manner worthy of our calling, so now we're moving into our sermon text starting in verse 17, is that we no longer walk 
like the Gentiles. And don't miss that this is emphatic. Look at verse 17. Paul says, therefore, because of all of this, I say and I testify in the Lord. Or I like how the NIV says it. I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Now, you read that, and I think it goes without saying that he didn't need to say, I say this and then add, and I testify. And he certainly didn't need to add, I testify in the Lord. Okay? Point is this. Paul here is wanting to get your attention. He's wanting to get my attention. He's saying, hey, listen up. This is important. Listen to Jesus. Here's what he wants us to understand. As Christians, as new creations in Christ, we are no longer to walk. That's biblical parlance for to live. We're to no longer live like the Gentiles. Or you could say, like unbelievers. We're to no longer live like the world. And listen to me close. This exhortation is here in Holy Scripture because we need it. We need this reminder. The church has always needed this reminder. Think about the Ephesian Christians as they're living life in pagan Ephesus, doing life with ungodly temples all around them, walking probably daily past temple prostitutes, hearing their friends and neighbors wooing them back to their old ways, either purposefully or just by nature of being around them on the regular. And so as they're experiencing all of that, Paul says, hey, Christian, listen up. Jesus doesn't want you to go back to living like them. He saved you out of that. Why would you want to go back? Brothers and sisters, I trust it goes without saying that the same reminder, the same exhortation is still here for us, and it is every bit as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. The world that's under the influence of the devil, I didn't make that up, so Ephesians 2.2, 2, this world is constantly beckoning us, it's wooing us to abandon the ways of Jesus and to come back to its ways. And Scripture here is saying, hey, Christian, don't do it. You've been saved out of that. Don't go back. Now, what is it that the inspired Word says we've been saved from? What, what, what is it that the Gentiles, the unbelievers do that we want to avoid with the same kind of focus that you would have trying to avoid chunky vomit on a sidewalk? Well, look back at the text. You'll see that it basically, basically breaks down into two categories. How they think, which leads to how they act. Look at verses 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Understanding the reality that what we believe drives how we act, Paul here begins with the mind. He, he begins with the ungodly, or better yet, the godless thinking 
of unbelievers. And by the way, when I say godless, you, you have to include false religions here because biblically speaking, anything short of worshiping the one true living God, the God of the Bible, is godless because the Bible holds out that all other religions are false. All other religions are idols. Thus, they're not God. Thus, it's godless. And I do need to say, you might be here with us visiting this morning, and you're not a Christian. You might take issue. In fact, I I trust that you're probably going to. You might take issue with some of the things that I've already said or I'm going to say and some of the things that you see here in the Bible. But here's my plea to you. My plea is that you would take this moment seriously, like maybe just like a research project. Because here's the thing. If the Bible is true as we believe with every fiber of our being here at this church, then you should at least want to know that this is giving you God's perspective on the thinking, the worldview of unbelievers. It's interesting, right? Unbelievers have a worldview about God that you're well aware of, because it's probably your worldview. This is giving you God's perspective on your thinking. Here he says that the mind of the unbeliever is futile. The word gets at the reality that their thinking is empty or meaningless. And in Ecclesiastes, this word is used regularly to characterize a life that's not centered around the one true living God. And Paul uses its cognate in the same way in Romans 1. And this is a very, very significant parallel text. And I invite you to turn with me to Romans 1. You might put your gathering guide in there or your finger or whatever because we're going to bounce back a couple of times. But I want to look at Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 18. We're going to see that Paul's using the same words through these, getting at same ideas in different ways. Starting in verse 18 through 21, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk about truth in a little bit. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, here just knew of God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became, here's that word, futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts darkened. Hold that idea because that's going to come up here too. Paul's point is this. Trying to set up a worldview, a system with which to understand the world that is without God, he says is futile. Uh, as a system to understand life, he says it's, it's, it's empty. It's, it's bankrupt. What's more, and by the way, as we go through, I want you to notice the downward spiral of this text and Romans 1. Here we see that this futility of mind leads them to being darkened in their understanding. And throughout the Bible, there's, 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 there's this light-darkness motif, and darkness is like never good, okay? The Gentiles, the unbelievers' way of thinking according to God is dark. Oh, they present themselves as the ones who have been enlightened, don't they, right? You've, you've, you've heard the language. 
We've been enlightened. We've moved on from the antiquated straitjacket that is the Bible. We can interpret everything we need about this world and us without God. Compare that with what the Bible says about being enlightened. Earlier in this very letter, for example, in Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that his readers might have the eyes of their hearts, so, so the control center, the, the, the mind, he prays that we might have the eyes of our hearts enlightened with the result that we would know what is the hope to which they've been called, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. So here, enlightenment is having a God-centered understanding of life. So don't miss this. Brothers and sisters, we will at times struggle living in the world we live in. We will, at times, if we live like a Christian, feel like the odd man or odd woman out. As Christians, you're going to be told that what you believe is antiquated. You're going to be told you're a bigot. You're going to be told you live on the wrong side of history and all sorts of other things like that. And I can assure you that's not always an easy place to live. But don't miss what Holy Scripture is telling us here. Enlightenment is not moving on from God. It is the exact opposite. It is when, by God's grace, He empowers us to view all of life, not without Him, but precisely through Him. And so Scripture is telling us the worldview of the unbeliever is the problem. That's what's dark and futile. What's more, the downward spiral continues because we're told that unbelievers are also alienated from the life of God precisely because of the ignorance that's in them and because of their hardness of heart. So, so they think all is well. They, they, they've got it figured out. And yet, inspired Scripture tells us they're actually alienated from God because of ignorance. And here we need to understand Paul gets his idea of knowledge, lack of knowledge, ignorance, from, from the Old Testament. He, he's, he's pivoting off of the Old Testament idea of covenantal knowledge, right, where we know God and He knows us, and this knowledge of God includes relationship with God. It includes obedience to God, and the same idea is seen throughout the New Testament. Consider the opposite of ignorance. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the knowledge we should desire is the knowledge of God. And this knowledge of God is not simply knowing some facts about God. It is experiential knowledge, a relationship with God that includes obeying God. That's why John in 1 John says you can test this, right? In 1 John 2, he says, by this we know that we've come to know Him. What's he testing? Know Him. He's testing our knowledge of God. By this we know we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I know Him, but does not keep His commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. So, knowledge of God is a relationship with God, and the rejection of God is indeed ignorance. And because of this ignorance, this godless worldview, and quite frankly, they're doubling and tripling down on it as described by their hardness of heart, Paul says they're alienated, excluded, cut off from the life of God. 
And, and we're going to see this ungodly thinking leads to ungodly living. But before we look at that in Ephesians, I want to show you the same thing again in Romans 1. So turn back to Romans 1. I'm going to pick it up in verse 21, kind of where we left off, and read down to the end of this section. <clears throat> Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They were ignorant. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, that's idols, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, watch this. This happens three times in this. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, here's a second one, God gave them over. You want it, you got it. God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. He's talking about lesbianism. And, and the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, one more time, God gave them over to a debased, look at it, to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Again, the mind drives the actions. As a result, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, here's the kicker, but they give hearty approval to those who practice such things. So you look at Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, as in Romans 1, we see there's a clear connection between worldview and lifestyle. Their thinking is futile. Their understanding is dark. They're ignorant, hell-bent to stay entrenched in that way of thinking, resulting in sensuality and the practice of every kind of impurity. The downward spiral continues. As their thinking is godless, they become calloused in what they're comfortable with. When I was in high school, I was introduced to the weight room. Our coach put us in the weight room. I had never lifted weights with actual metal bars and all of that, and my hands were getting shredded, and I saw some other guys wearing gloves, and I asked an upperclassman, like, should I get some gloves or something? He's like, no, just keep working out. You'll get natural gloves, and by that he meant you'll get calluses, and, and, and you can start to do the same thing and no longer be bothered by what once bothered you. And that's in line with Paul's point regarding this downward spiral. Because of the darkened mind, because of the entrenched nature of the godless worldview, these people become calloused in their conscience. Now, they've made it where certain things that maybe once bothered them bother them no more. 
Now, obviously, Scripture is our clearest guide to truth, to what's right and wrong. But Paul says in Romans 1, there's a degree to which we recognize things through natural revelation. And I think part of that is the degree to which God has hardwired every single human being with a conscience. I mean, why is it on any continent? If, if a man walks up to a woman, doubles his fist, and punches her in the face, or hits a child, people are going to flip out. Whether there's a law code against that or not, they're just going to because it's hardwired. It's written on the conscience. Men just don't hit women or children. But we can create calluses over that conscience, can't we? We create calluses as we tell ourselves enough times there's no God, and thus there's no ultimate truth, and thus what these antiquated people told me is wrong. It's not really wrong. I can just do it. And the calluses form, and thus Paul, as he says, having become calloused, they've given themselves up to sensuality. They have given themselves up to sensuality. Now, having just read Romans 1, you may be thinking, wait, hold on. Does God give them over to their sin, or do they give themselves over? And of course, the biblical answer is yes. Part and parcel of God's judgment is to give people over to their own sin, right? They're living in rebellion, and God sort of says, you want it, you got it, and it's a downward spiral. But there's also the reality that He's delivering them over to what they're already passionately pursuing themselves. They, they, they're actively rejecting God and running headlong into this sin. Here we're told that they've given themselves over to sensuality. The word can also be translated debauchery. This is a life characterized by self-indulgence and a lack of self-restraint. It's tied to what Paul calls the practice of every kind of impurity, and so sensuality debauchery taken with every practice of impurity clearly point us in the direction of sexual sin like you saw in Romans 1, but certainly not limited to that. Now think of the list in Romans 1 or think of some of the other vice lists in the Bible. We might think of Galatians 5.19 and following. He says, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, consider the spiral. You have a dark, godless worldview. You've worked hard to reject God, and the more you've done so, the more calloused your conscience has become. You deliver yourself over to sensuality so that you're all in, right? Unbridled, no restraint in the practice of every kind of impurity. And while the ESV says greedy to practice every kind of impurity, I don't think that's the best translation here because in the original, as you see, if you're looking at a NASB or an NIV, this greediness, covetousness, is actually the last aspect of the downward spiral. The picture is you can never get enough, right? never satisfied, got to have more, got to push the envelope a little bit further. And I would argue this is both in terms of can't get enough, it's never satisfying, and the lines will be pushed further. There's no stopping of the lines either. And so, for example, it's not enough to simply say marriage is no longer between a man and a woman because the circle's being broadened, right? Now you might say something like, oh, they're married? Wow, sweet, gay or hetero? Ah, 
hetero-ish. Huh, what do you mean hetero-ish? Well, this is really cool. She's actually he, and he's actually a she. And we should celebrate that, because after all, we must celebrate all sorts of mess. And heads up to the poor, unsuspecting schlep who overhears such a conversation and perhaps frowns, or worse yet, has the audacity to say anything against this, because just as Romans 1 told us what happened some 2,000 years ago, it is not enough to merely tolerate it. Part of this greediness to expand the borders of impurity is demanding that you actually celebrate it. And by the way, if you haven't read Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, I would encourage you to get a copy of it, because he digs into sort of a historical walkthrough of how we got there with all of the thinkers along the way that allowed us to get to a place where all of a sudden somebody can look at you and say, I'm a man in a woman's body fighting to get out, and you don't think twice about it, right? All that said, we need to keep going because Paul moves on from warning against falling back into the ways of the world to exhorting us to actively live for Christ. Look back at the text, verses 20 through 24, back in Ephesians. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard Him and were taught in Him, as truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He transitions here from how not to live to how to live, and in similar fashion, he begins with the mind. Unbelievers have a godless worldview. Christians are to grow in having a Christ-centered worldview. Now, the syntax in this section is challenging in places, but I think the main points are clear. Having, having just walked us through what is the dark and godless thinking and life of the unbeliever, he wants to make it clear that if you're in Christ, you've learned Christ. You've heard Jesus. You've been taught Christ. And this is vital because Jesus is the very locus of truth. Verse 21 begins with a type of conditional sentence in the Greek where the first part is assumed to be true. Thus, the ESV is rendering assuming that you've heard. For, for, for the Christian, we've learned Christ. And I love the language here. The content of what we've learned is Jesus. We've come to understand the gospel, the good news of what God has done for sinners like us in Christ. All of us, don't ever forget, we're in that dark, pathetic camp we just described in verses 17 through 19. Just remember chapter 2. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were all deserving of God's wrath, heading straight toward it. And yet God, in His grace, sent His Son Jesus, who lived the perfect life we could never live. He went to the cross, bore the punishment we deserve to bear. And then someone shared that with you. You heard it. And God gave you the faith to believe and be saved from judgment and have a new relationship with Him. And let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, I would plead with you. Look to Christ. Take what this is saying seriously. 
Believe on Christ today. That initial belief is probably what Paul means when he says, since indeed you've heard him. A lot of the translations say heard about him, but it's just heard him. That hearing Christ is probably pointing back to the first time you heard Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. And then he talks about the ongoing instruction in Christ that we've had, which in the context of chapter 4 is almost certainly in the local church where gifted leaders equip the saints by teaching, by instruction, so that the saints will be mature in their faith, not carried along by every wind of doctrine or human cunning or craftiness and deceitful schemes, so verses 11 through 16. We teach Christ because, as Paul says, truth is in Jesus. And this statement's so important. When you're reading this passage, it's impossible to miss because, look at it, it actually interrupts the flow of Paul's argument. It's basically a big parenthesis, but so important to Paul that he's willing to just interrupt the flow because, in fact, it is the positive antithesis to what he was talking about above. Remember, what we believe leads to what we do. Our worldview is directly tied to our lifestyle, and earlier he made it painfully clear that unbelievers have absolutely no sense of what truth is as they're futile in mind, darkened in their understanding, ignorant of God, and hard-hearted in that state. But for the Christian, we have truth. We have the truth, as Jesus himself is the truth. He's the embodiment of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the teacher of truth. And so Christians are enlightened, not darkened. And while our unbelieving friends might throw stones at what we believe, we can take heart because Scripture told us it would happen. And, and, and here gives us vital pieces to our worldview to help us understand the world around us. That being said, if we go back to the flow of the section, understanding the statement as truth is in Jesus, as sort of the parenthetical, then you see that Paul gives us three things that we've been taught in Christ. Look back at verse 21. He says, assuming that you've heard him and were taught in him, taught what? Remove the, as the truth is in Jesus. You see the three things. To put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self. So let's take these one at a time. Start with Paul's teaching to put off the old self. This is one of the places in the Bible, one of many places in the Bible where we have these like healthy tensions, right? Because you may recall back in chapter 2, Paul said we were dead, but now for the Christian, we're alive. And Christian, that's true. Embrace it. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Every Christian can say this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Praise God. That's true. Believe it. Live in light of it. Or think about the picture we have in baptism, according to Romans 6. Being plunged under the water is a, is a, is a picture of the old self dying. And then coming up out of the water, you're raised to walk in newness of life, a new person. Again, all true. And as believers, we must embrace this. There was a fundamental shift that happened at your conversion. Before conversion, we were dead spiritually. We were completely unable to move toward God on our own. Our thinking was futile. Our understanding darkened. We were ignorant. We were hard-hearted in that state. We thought we knew better. But all that changed when we came to Christ, praise God. Now, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we're new creations in Christ. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works so that we can walk in them, live in them, live in good works. And yet we know there's a biblical tension here, isn't there? Because here Paul's teaching us that for those who are new creations in Christ, those who have died to the old ways, but notice what he's saying. One of the good works we're created to walk in that should be consistent in our life is the ongoing work of putting off what we've already died to, right? Putting off the old self. Literally, in the original, the old self is the old man. And I do think this is one of the times where sort of gender-neutral translations hurt us. There's a connection here with solidarity with Adam in his sin that we were all born into. That's the old man, the sin nature that we're to, that we're to put off. The new man that we're to put on, as we'll see in a moment, is of course Christ, who's the representative of the new humanity, the new creation in Christ. So, so putting off the old man is a picture Paul paints to drive home the point that as Christians we must work diligently to fight, to put off the many pockets of the sin nature, our old dead nature that's still present within us. And by the way, by the way, please don't miss that Paul says that the old man within is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, many a young believer has come running to a friend or even a pastor with great fears that their profession of faith didn't take, right? The source of their struggle is that they can't believe that after sort of the high of coming to know Jesus, that they would still have an inclination to sin. Well, this is one of the many areas where the prosperity gospel or easy believism has let us down. If you think just because you've made a profession of faith that your thinking, that your desires are always all Jesus, well, you've got another thing coming. Now, see, this passage and so many others throughout the New Testament teach us that this is our daily work. This is a fight, and it will be a fight. It's ongoing. You've heard me say before, you don't fall into holiness, right? You fall into sin. We must pursue here, work at holiness. And here, if you're not actively working to put off the old man, then you are actively being deceived by our own deceitful desires, falling back into corruption, and we need to repent. And for the Christian, this is a lifelong endeavor. There's a daily putting off and putting on. But before we get to the putting on, notice the second thing he says that we've been taught that I think is actually intimately related to putting on the new man. In verse 23, there's an interpretive issue there for us. The question is, is Paul saying, like the ESV, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds or to be renewed of mind by the Holy Spirit? So, so the debate is, is the spirit in this verse the human spirit? And thus Paul's sort of using synonyms to drive home the point that what's being renewed is the inmost being. Or is Paul saying that the Holy Spirit is about the work of renewing our minds. And you can see on my outline where I go with that. I take the Spirit here to be the Holy Spirit. And quite frankly, even if you take it the other way, because a lot of good people do, the point is still basically the same because we know broader theologically, inward renewal that Paul's talking about here is indeed the work of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the point here is that as we're putting off the old man, 
fighting the old sin nature. We're also to be having our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit. And boy, at this point, I wish I had time to take us to the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16, three chapters that speak more about the Holy Spirit than any other place in the whole Bible. And there Jesus teaches us that the Holy Spirit most typically works through the Word of God. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. He's not into new revelation. He's not renewing our mind through a new word from on high. He's renewing our mind through Holy Scripture. Jesus said He takes that which is of Christ, Christ's words, right? Christ's teaching. Christ's teaching that He spoke on this earth. Christ's teaching through the inspired writers of Scripture. He takes that and He massages it deep down into our souls, into our minds. And to be sure, just like putting off and putting on, there's an active component here for the believer. If the Holy Spirit is about the work of renewing our minds through the Word of God, then I want to make sure that I'm taking in as much Word of God as I possibly can. Romans 12, 2 is a helpful parallel. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you might discern what is the will of God. Where do, where do you discern that? How? How about the revealed will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? Brothers and sisters, our minds are shaped by what we take in. And if proportionally we're taking in more things of the world, then don't be surprised that in feeding the old man, you start being more conformed to the world. The old man starts rearing his ugly head in your life. That's what happens, right? If, if, if what you think matters, then what you hear matters. Because like it or not, hear it enough, see it enough, and you start to embrace more of it than even you think. Again, read Truman's Rise and Triumph and see how much the modern self has in fact influenced your life. The old adage, garbage in, garbage out, is still on point. I mean, Christian, let's be clear. If we take in more Netflix or network TV or social media than we do Scripture, don't be surprised when you find that your thinking is more conformed to the world than to Christ as you find yourself struggling with deceitful desires. The Christian walk is active. Search the New Testament while you see all these active words. We walk, not just sit passively. We run we fight, we work, we put off, and we put on. The picture Paul paints here with this putting on language is that of taking off old clothing and putting on new. I might be weird here, but I love cutting grass. My son has a grass business, and I don't let him cut my yard because I like to do it. I guess being in ministry where you almost never see immediate results, there's something intensely gratifying to going out to a yard that doesn't look very good, spend about two hours out there, and it looks great, right? It's just, it's just satisfying. Now, that being said, after cutting the grass, I don't come in and plop down on the couch and expect my family to come cuddle up next to me. 
No, my clothes are full of sweat and dirt and grass clippings, and I always find some way to get gasoline on me. And so I look and I smell awful. And so I, I take off the dirty clothes and put on the clean ones. And that's the picture Paul's painting for us. The old man that sin nature will be a part of our lives until Jesus comes again. And every day, as we see pockets of the old ways still in our lives, as we find those old grimy socks, as it were, or dirty underwear, we're to take it off and put on the new. Take it off, put on the new. We put on the new man, which is working to live in conformity with our new identity. Remember, we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The new man is not simply a makeover of the old man. Again, we're new creations in Christ. Human beings were originally created in the image and likeness of God, so Genesis 1, but that image and likeness was distorted by man's fall into sin. In the new creation, that image and likeness is restored and is being restored. It's being restored as we grow in Christ, as we continue to put on the new man on a daily basis. That image and likeness is being more and more conformed into the image of Christ in what Paul says here, righteousness, holiness, and truth. And brothers and sisters, this is a daily occurrence. This is ongoing. This is the life of the Christian. And I want to end with this because we always need to be reminded of this. I want to end where we started. We've got to go back to the therefore. Because what I'm talking about is work. It's hard. It's not passive. But it pivots off the therefore. We don't work to make ourselves right with God. We don't work to somehow get in God's good graces. This, this work, this fighting to put off, put on, is because God has loved us in such amazing ways through Christ. It's an overflow of the gospel, and we need to be reminded of that. We want to preach the gospel to ourselves. It's not a self-help sort of thing, church. It's not a, hey, buckle down, white-knuckle it. You, you want to grow here, remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself you're on the outside looking in, and God, God brought you in. Remind yourself you were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, His grace. Remind yourself of Christ's work on the cross and live your life out of the overflow of that. Let's pray. Father, your word is not always easy, but it is true. And I pray that you would give us the grace to stand on your word. Father, I thank you for the song that we sang even before the sermon. And Lord, I pray that. Lord, teach us full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Lord, renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. And help us live our lives out of the overflow of those realities for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.